Elise Kennedy, welcome to Jarvan's Startup Tech Series, where we host entrepreneurs, venture funds, and technology companies on trends across the industry. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by David Welsh, the CEO and founder of building analytics software company, CIM. So for those not familiar with CIM, the platform integrates building intelligence, machine learning, and mechanical engineering to improve efficiency and productivity and sustainability across property. Now, that's a brief description. So David, I'm going to turn it over to you to explain a bit more. Thanks, Elise. Thanks for hosting me as well. I really appreciate it. Yes, yeah, so I'm the founder and CEO of CIM. I'm a computer scientist by trade. And the reason I started the business is because I identified that within the built environment, everyone was adding additional hardware and sensors to capture the data that was already flowing around large, complex assets. So what I did was I built a software platform that helps the people that operate large, complex buildings to run them at their peak performance. And the reason I did that was because when I got into the built environment, I saw that within large buildings, and they are like shopping centers, airports, and now we also work in manufacturing, there's legacy systems um, mm -hmm. that don't always talk to each other. There's lots of um, different kind of maintenance contracts. There's a lot of pressure on outgoings for, for real estate investment trust owners. And the government is demanding mandatory disclosure of emissions. Tenants are demanding green leases. So I identified that the macros around sustainability, energy efficiency, and operational efficiency were very strong. But the challenge that I saw was the micro challenge of acquiring the data. Mm. I just believe that everyone's approach to it was, was wrong. I, I felt they were missing a trick. So what I did was I, I founded CIM, stands for Continuous Intelligent Monitoring. And I spent basically two or three years in research mode to identify how I could cost-effectively and quickly acquire, transmit, normalize and visualize data from existing buildings with very limited hardware. And that's what I've done. So our clients are large real estate investment trusts. So we do all of GPT retail shopping centers. We do all of QIC, GRE, Global Reset, all 20 something of their shopping centers, uh, Murbeck Retail. We do all of Charter Halls buildings. We do all of Abacus. Also as well within cultural institutions, we do Melbourne Museum, a very large and excellent cultural institution. Um, selected our technology as well. And we do things like Bankstown Sports Club and most of the airports as well. So that's here in Australia. And then in Europe, um, we went from the sector of real estate into high-tech manufacturing. Mm -hmm. um, and we've been fortunate enough to be able to bring in really, really tier one clients like Johnson & Johnson, Dell, Analog Devices, Thermo Fisher. And the same problems around operational efficiencies exist within high-tech manufacturing as mm -hmm. they do within large real estate offices and, and shopping. Interesting. And so that geographic footprint that you're in today... What is the split? Is it majority Europe or is it majority ANZ? Yeah, so look, the split is probably 85-15 in, in percentage of revenue between AU and, and Europe. We opened that business in Europe about 18 months ago and, and quite quickly we were able to get into that sector. And it's really interesting because, you know, you have we have clients here like GPT, for example, is my, was my first client. And they are really, really sophisticated and really good. Um, Dow Jones World Sustainability Index and Gresby reporting. They're really, you know, really know exactly what they're doing. And it's a really compliment when, you know, you, our go-to-market model is kind of a hub and spoke. So we get one, two, three pilot sites, which would be our hub. And then essentially we would try and work with the client to see how they could select our technology across an entire portfolio. And that's the model. That was our go-to-market here in Australia. Um, and it's really good. And it's, it's like GPT and, and Mervac and QIC. They, it's very humbling when they say, and they retain and, you know, continue to be clients. But it's it's kind of a next level up. It's another, a different 
different chin up or, or press up when you you go to Europe and you got someone like uh, Johnson and Johnson who've, who've seen every kind of technology and they, they kind of say, look, we haven't seen stuff like this before. So it's really exciting. Um, over the next, you know, three to five years, um, our growth areas will definitely be like in the Northern Hemisphere and definitely within high-tech manufacturing. And I'm curious, your revenue model, how do you price it? Is it a monthly, is it occurring, is it a long-term contract? So look, uh, firstly, it was another part to the kind of prop tech sector. And when I started six years ago, there was no such word as prop tech. I like it. <laughs> someone, someone far smarter than me came up with that, uh, that. But what I saw within technology, within the property sector, or it was all upfront capital. And then kind of, you know, five, six, seven months before the actual building owner got to see what the outcome was. And I just thought traditional SaaS model of free to install and a monthly fee was far easier um, for the clients to kind of to digest. Mm. And equally, it puts an awful lot more onus and, and also responsibility on us as a technology company because we promote kind of end at any time, like month to month contracts. Because what I say to our clients is, look, all the risk is on us. If you don't like what we do, well, then you can just finish the contract. Now, over time, what happens when you we've ended up with multiple kind of properties within a portfolio on different contracts, then the owner say, look, let's let's do proper procurement here and do a three or five year contracts. So almost the majority of our contracts are on longer term contracts. But like the true kind of metric for for any business, in particular a SaaS business, is that churn. And our revenue churn is less than 1%. It's actually 0.64%. And mm-hmm. with, an, with an awful lot of our clients, we have NRR, net revenue retention, so upsell. So one of our one of our major clients, large shop center owner, roughly just under 60 grand a month of, of kind of recurring fees. They're on the platform for years. And they're, as of July 1, they're going to just under 90,000 a month in kind of fees. So that's a real kind of testament to the value because people mm-hmm. don't want any additional systems. They only want things that improve collaboration and, and, and transparency and deliver more returns to shareholders. And I'm curious, if we think about the industry that you're in, it sounds as though it's it's ripe for disruption, particularly with that revenue model that you mentioned with lumpy contracts and you're disrupting it with the SaaS. How do you think about your target market and who are in that market today that you're competing against? Yeah, so look, I mean, how we think about, let's say, our go-to-market or our target clients is when I started, I mean, I knew the problems that existed when these large assets and they, they're the breakdowns. There's a lack of transparency. In many cases, there's a lot of vendor lock where, mm-hmm. you know, the incumbent provider you know, kind of scares the property owners say, you know, you can't touch these systems or you void warranties. And it's no different than if you have a nice car, you kind of have to bring it back to a certain garage. You know, if you have an Audi, you have to bring it back to an Audi garage to get it serviced, right? And it's not very often the actual the actual uh, bill pair is in the DAR. So I knew those problems existed and I went about building the technology to kind of break open that model and provide that transparency and accountability and essentially get more out of what the existing owners already had. So my, the P, my target market was very much decision makers that owned multiple assets. So that would be kind of fund managers or national operation managers. We are, but what we end up finding is that for our go-to market within a large real estate investment trust, we typically have to have three or four people who really believe the technology. So that would be a fund manager, national operations manager, kind of a chief innovation officer, and very often energy and sustainability. But the the benefits to the different stakeholders, it's interesting. And you'll find this with a lot of enterprise SaaS businesses is that the bill, the person, the economic buyer may not be the user of the technology. And in our case, there's kind of multiple benefits to different sets of stakeholders. So what we have found is that the likes of GIC, the Singaporean Sovereign Fund and kind of the Norwegian Sovereign Fund, they want to invest in assets that are using data science, 
that can demonstrate that they're going above and beyond around emission reduction and that there's a high resolution granular data set that they can prove. So that's the kind of highest level of the stakeholder engagement. But then the next kind of target is, or the next person that benefits is that fund manager because fund managers, you know, they really are, they're tasked with the kind of delivering innovation and, and moving the dial across um, the portfolio and really returning more value to the shareholders. So when we end up sitting down with them and saying, hey, look, there's a better mousetrap in all of this. There's a better way to run these assets. It doesn't involve kind of, you know, reducing headcount. It actually involves, you know, getting more out of your existing supply chain. They very quickly kind of say, okay, well, look, this is very interesting. You know, it, it, the actual user of the software would be more a national operations manager. So we end up again then having the part of the um, sales cycle is talking to those operations managers, showing them how they can get that visibility across, let's say, 10, 15, 20, in the case of Charter Hall, nearly 50 assets, and have a uniform data set that they can benchmark one building against another and understand why, say, an asset is underperforming and be able to make that phone call to the relevant person say, hey, look, there's extremely simple to kind of resolve. And we've made the software so that um, a non-technical person can essentially tap to approve what would have been a previously a very complex issue to identify. And when that you get that improved collaboration between all the stakeholders on the site, what happens is the environmental ratings increase, the outgoings and the expenditure, they decrease. You get to critical system failures before they happen. So it means that even for insurance companies, they like this additional data set and to see that um, there's kind of data science being used within operations. Mm. And overall, it, it just ends up, I mean, you know, when we are, we've created a scenario whereby emissions and emissions reduction is just the biggest challenge, right? And the mm. very first fuel that we should think about is efficiency. I'm not anti-solar, I'm not anti-wind power, geothermal, nuclear. They all have their place, but sustainability is all about getting more out of what you already have. I'm curious, are you disrupting other technology in there at the moment that is capturing that or are you really just starting to grow the concept in the market and some of the trends that you're uh, spoken about? I think it's the latter. Like, I think now is the only time I could have built a business like this. Mm -hmm. And that's partly because of, you know, the way technology and what we would term to be the tech stack, the Mm -hmm. tech infrastructure has evolved. So if you go back 15 years ago, if I was like, we currently take 1.6 billion data points from all the buildings in the background, you can see it out of your office there. Most of those buildings are our clients. And those 1.6 billion data points, 15 years ago, it would have been very costly to acquire that data, to transmit it. You may have had to put in an ISDN line and then to store it, you might've had to store it on hard drives. So whereas now hardware and the transmission is very cost-effective, and then we store our data in the cloud, which is, you know, very quite has a lot of elasticity. So it means the more we have and it allows us to scale the business. And then, you know, team wise, I, as I grew the business, like we're, we're up to just under 50 people, I knew I needed really people that understood what it was like to kind of um, build highly collaborative software tools. So our chief technology officer is, is an awesome person, um, Anton Maskevoy. He was the first employee, um, first full-time employee, excluding Mike and Scott in Atlassian. And Anton was the head of engineering for 11 years in Atlassian. And he's with us now four years, but he's, he, he is you know, a really a world-leading CTO. And part of Anton, the reason Anton liked the, the work that we were doing was that, and this ties back into the question you asked, is like there is no Microsoft Salesforce Atlassian in this kind of building analytics set. And when I spoke with Anton about it and I showed him all the problems that occur and how it was like, you know, there was nobody 
making the complex simple and how I needed to build a really high performance kind of collaboration tool that got to the bottom of all this. He really liked it and he jumped in and he's been great. And we have a really strong technical team, which is probably testament to that kind of low customer churn and high usage on the platform. That's a good segue into the question around how, you know, there might not be some competitors, but what are those barriers to entry? Is it around the talent? Is it around the IP? Perhaps some of those details. Yeah, look, a barrier to entry, a huge part of it is that research that I did for three or four years at the very start. I'm a computer scientist. And what I did was, you know, I really just did not believe that electricity submetering or additional sensors. I just thought that that was, it's very difficult to scale businesses like that. Like, so what we put into business, into buildings and factories and airports is one, essentially one piece of hardware. It's essentially a listening device. And that allows us in the case of Charter Hall, to essentially onboard the entire portfolio in less than six weeks without visiting one of the assets. Um, so it means that we can essentially digitize those assets very, very quickly. And the reason we're able to do it quickly now is that barrier to entry. It is that all that time I spent kind of researching how what's the best way to get this data and transmit it. And the other key thing, at least, is, is the normalization of it. All the equipment mm. within the kind of industrial internet is, has different names. It's labeled differently, even though it's the same piece of equipment, it's the same data point. There's mm. no uniform standard. So we had to create that standard and align to kind of international protocols. Mm. So that barrier to entry, no matter who, and like at the moment, I just seem to see, you know, you know, two or three entrants a month into this sector around like data analytics. But irrespective to any kind of body that jumps in, they still have to jump that technical moat of, mm. uh, as I say, that challenge of, of getting and normalizing the data. And then we currently have, I've heavily invested in AI and machine learning. There's nearly 9,000 algorithms running over those 1.6 billion data points. And what they're doing is they're, they're deciphering from all that data. What are the data points that are causing wastage for the property owner? What are the points that are, you know, in meetings, everybody's worked in an office that's either mm-hmm. too hot or too cold. And that kills productivity. And even now, as people come back into the office in a post kind of COVID landscape, everyone is incredibly emotional about, <laughs> about the conditions. And so all of those problems are caused by these systems, these back of house systems, HVAC, lighting, um, building management systems, lifts, and the challenge for the owners is that they never combine to improve performance. It's kind of entropy. They always combine to kind of degrade performance and impact outgoings. There's always breakdowns. And technology like ours is, is getting to the bottom of the issues quickly and really helping people to run a profitable asset. Just going back to thinking about the customer, when you mentioned, you know, there's potentially a few other competitors coming in. When you go and do sit down uh, with potential tender, do you see other participants that they're shopping around at the same time or do you find yeah. that you can be the only one? How do you win when it comes to those types of tenders? Yeah, look, it's interesting. So all of the kind of big players who would be the, you know, the multinationals, the Siemens, Schneider, Honeywell, Johnson Controls, they, they kind of try to compete with us. It is very difficult for them because you know, they end up having to install a system based on a, a consultant's brief. Their remit is control this building. But, you know, and when we spoke just before this podcast, just about, you know, similar companies on the, on the on, that are publicly listed. And integrated research, from what I know of integrated research, and they're an awesome company, is but one of the key things that, that I've read about them is that they, they are quite good at independently validating and verifying the performance of uh, IT networks. That was a lot to do with the model that I came up with with this with, with CIM because I saw that there was very little independent validation of these third-party 
mechanical systems and control systems. And that's what people want. A property owner, you know, they don't buy a building and specify Siemens everywhere. They always go to tender. They look for the best types of systems for the different locations. So it means that they need one uniform way of looking at all of these diverse systems. So it's very difficult for the big players to compete with us. Mm. Although, you know, they're in like every single building we're in, there is, you know, one of these large building management systems in. Then you also find that kind of we tie into the, we actually improve how consultants deal with the clients and more and more as we kind of improve our product and, and continue to invest in data science and user interface, we're able to bring that, the consultants into the supply chain, in, into the product so that they can help. It's a tool in the toolbox for them because they have the existing relationships with the, with the building owners. And kind of my long-term plan for this, this product is that, you know, we, we currently uh, deliver an awful lot of value to the exit to the, the building owner and the facility manager but for me to scale this business and you know i'm not trying to build a 100 million dollar business like i don't you don't get the people that i have on the team sheet to come in and, and spend five years you know to create a 100 million dollar business it has to be many times that multiple and that's our intention over the next um three to five years is to do that right to become a multi-billion dollar business and the only way we can do that is to ramp up the scale. It's great. We do really good revenue and, and you know, we'll hit 10 million recurring by the end of this calendar year, mm-hmm. but it's not enough for me. I mean, I really want to build something that's meaningful and in actual fact, build an iconic company. And for me, something that's iconic is not a 50, maybe a hundred million recurring. That's the plan. They're inspiring. It's a very exciting journey. Perhaps that's a good uh, question to ask about what, where do you see and how do you see the growth? Is it more geographies? Is it more verticals? What's the... Yeah. So look, at like what we'll do over the next, um, as I say, over the next um, three to five years is we will set up offices in the US and in Singapore. So we'll definitely have a presence on the ground. We already have 12 people in Europe. And so we'll, we'll double down on that there and continue, let's say, the engagement that we have with those large high-tech manufacturing. So it's geographical and then it's, it's vertical. It's two different verticals. And those verticals are high-tech manufacturing and then real estate. Like real estate on its own is still the largest asset class in the world. So if you, you know, if you dig into the TAM and the SAM, like the total addressable market and the segmented, it's just, it's huge. And here in Australia, we're quite fortunate in the sense that we do 64% of all the premium A-grade shopping centers, but we still only do less than, less than 20% of the commercial office buildings. And we don't really do an awful lot within, we don't do anything yet in hospitals. And um, we very little, we have a couple of assets in the cultural institutions, but there's still, that's still on its own is a big matter. So it'll be a long time before we back up against the TAM here in Australia. So when you, but when you get over, um, like I was talking to one of the facility managers recently, and they told me that in the US, they manage more commercial property than there is commercial property in all of Australia. And mm-hmm. we're about to sign a large kind of um, agreement with that. Um, facility manager here in Australia and what we want to do with them is to is to as I say be a tool in the toolbox for their facility managers so that they're able to very very simply like tap to approve an issue assign it to the right contractor know that it's a no cost or low cost fix see how all these issues are being rectified and really bring a new level of kind of control and even joy to that user experience because it's just incredibly difficult to manage a large complex building. I can see how that would be the case. And thinking about, you know, the, the scalability, obviously right now, heavy investment 
So when we think about the trends over perhaps three to five years, what is the biggest cost today and where do you see those trending longer term? Yeah, so look, I mean, we're, we're a SaaS-based business. So I mean, 71% of our costs, like a lot of other businesses, yeah, people costs. But for us, our gross margin as well, because we're SaaS, it's, it's north of 70%. We have a clear line of sight on about 85% of a gross margin. So as we scale, I mean, again, like every other kind of SaaS-based business, I'm not interested in profit right now. I'm... We did hit profitability last November, and, and that's kind of a chin-up that I wanted to do because, as I say, I bootstrapped this business, and mm. I really wanted to demonstrate that this isn't you know just something that you got to keep pouring cash into and, and, and hope that you can flick a revenue lever in 10 years' time and generate a lot of cash. So I, I really wanted to do that and demonstrate that we couldn't. Since November of last year, we've been investing back into sales and marketing. And for us, like... And it's probably a byproduct of being a, being a computer scientist and a technical founder is I spent all of the kind of the client money and we did raise some money over the, over the years, but not an awful lot, just over 5 million Australian. I spent all of that on the product and on the technology and our customer success team. And the way we grew the business and we like was we grew from word of mouth, right? Where one property owner or one operations manager or fund manager would say, hey, look, yeah, this, this company is, is really helping us. and it was only 16, maybe 18 months ago that we actually got our first marketeer into the office. So for me, is the, the path to scaling is very much, you know, focusing on doing the basics around sales and marketing and filling the top of the funnel. We have nobody doing outbound field sales. And all of that is, is for me, like, I suppose it's for me, that stuff isn't the difficult thing. <laughs> like the difficult thing is, 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 is creating the team and the management team that I have and demonstrating that, you can create a whole new sector and then, you know, getting, uh, you know, clients that are raving fans. And then after that, I figured, look, I will then like put some petrol into the tank, get more money and really, really go hard on sales and marketing and ramp it up internationally. Exciting. And one of the last questions we just always ask is around M&A and the appetite to grow inorganically. How do you think about that? So look, there's no doubt. And if you look at any of the, the most successful SaaS businesses, it's you got to create a product, um, and but then quite quickly you got to create product number two. So if you look at Atlassian, that's that's obviously Jira, and then quite quickly Mike and Scott were clever enough to to create Confluence. Yeah. But it gets to a certain point as as the revenue uh, graph goes up and to the right that you know you get to a point when you really got to kind of look towards M and A. It's I mean I'm I, I kind of we keep a good we do an awful lot of competitor analysis. Mm. Um, and we look at it, but right now, for me, we have a couple of kind of uh, groups that we think are doing kind of interesting stuff, not directly in our sector, but would be that you would create synergies um, if you were to acquire them. But there's just no question that for me, between now and let's say 50 million recurring, I can achieve that with our current go-to-market model. And then as you look towards, you know, the good thing for technology businesses now, and I think even the likes of safety culture have shown this, where there is a, almost a grey market for, for mm -hmm. shares. And you, you know, you, you know, you, like I go back to ten or fifteen years ago, companies like us would have to rush to the public markets for liquidity and stuff. And it's it's kind of changing a little bit, and that's because you know there's, you know, the cat is out of the bag when it comes to the value in a recurring revenue model with high retention and gross profit margins. So. M&A is definitely a part of the journey, It's, but it's not in the, let's say, next six to 12 months. Mm -hmm. But again, as we scale, everything kind of pops up onto the table. 
Yes, there's a lot of growth by the sounds of it over the next at least six to 12 months and a lot further. Thank you once again, David Welsh, the CEO and founder of Building Analytics Software or PropTech, more correctly named, software company CIM. We are really grateful for your time and we look forward to circling around and, and hearing more about the business over the next month. Thanks, Elise. Really, thanks for having me.